0: Welcome to the M Game Podcast.
1: In this podcast, we're trying to learn how to play the motherhood game. We're your hosts. I'm Sarah Newberry Moore. And I'm Pam Ralph Jones. We are both pro athletes,
0: mothers, and entrepreneurs. We're knee deep in the journey through motherhood. This podcast is here for us to share our unique experience balancing what it means to reach the top of your game and be a mother.
1: We're going to be asking the hard questions, not only of other people, but of ourselves
0: here on the show where we'll be discussing how to bring your m-game welcome to the m-game a podcast created by athlete moms working toward an even playing field in sport and life pam jones and sarah newberry moore that's me are professional athletes business owners and mothers and as professional athletes we were interested in raising families But we realized that there weren't that many accessible voices out there addressing how to do both motherhood and professional sport. We also kind of figured that there weren't as many voices out there addressing how to do motherhood and other things as there could be either. So we started a podcast, which is The M-Game. And you're here with us today as we aim to identify the tools and strategies for navigating life and motherhood that are being used by the best out there, the best in the game. and so you'll find here at the M game in the following episodes in this one as well, the voices and the stories of professionals and athletes who are at the top of their game and who can help you figure out how to bring your M game too. So today we have a really special guest. Um, she's here to help us answer some questions that we had and that were brought up over the last few episodes. Kelsey Eckert is an award-winning history teacher and consultant. She's a professor of social studies education at Plymouth State University. She's also a mother to a two-year-old child, and she's a three-time Ironman athlete. Kelsey developed a lesson plan for the History Channel on women's history. She has traveled all over the world, and she, most importantly um, to this Episode and for her organization, she started the Remedial History Project, which is, which is um, on a mission to identify and to address, and to remedy the absence of women's historical themes in education. So we reached out to Kelsey to see if she could help us discuss a little bit about women in history and how we got to where we are today. Um, a really cool time where the powerful mother athlete figure is in play. So. Welcome, Kelsey, and thank you so much for joining us today.
2: Oh, I'm so excited to be here. This is like such an important mission that you guys are on and uh, so meaningful and obviously timely given the introduction there. So I can't wait. This is going to be amazing.
1: <laughs> so one of the things that I guess is a really common theme, I think, with um Women right now, but specifically like the women that we're talking to and athletes in our sphere um, is about kind of educating ourselves. And I think that was one of our main goals of bringing you on to the show today was like, how can we learn as much as possible so that we can figure this stuff out for ourselves? Because it's so easy to just dive out into Google or whatever search, you know, search you want to use. Um and kind of have someone else form an opinion that you relate to. But I think it's the most organic and authentic way for us to kind of navigate these questions that we have about our roles as women and as mothers in 2021 to, to just get all of the gather all the information. Um, and so Sarah and I have been saying this for at the end of almost all of our podcasts we we're like, we really need to get a historian on here. We really need to get someone who can tell us how we've gotten to this place. Um, and so for our listeners, I would love it if you would just give you a brief introduction of kind of your journey into, um, into this realm, um, would be, it, it would be great to to hear that from you.
2: Sure. Well, I, I should preface all of this by saying that I'm not a professional historian. <laughs> um, my background is in social studies education and, um, I, came to this space as a feminist, as an athlete, um as a woman, similar to you, sort of searching for my own deeper understanding. And how funny is motherhood that we um, sort of feel, Um, alone in it yet, like so many women have given birth (laughs) and yet as a really common experience where, especially in those first few weeks or months of being a new mom, people feel like this is the first time this has ever happened, right? I must be the first person who's ever had a colicky baby or whatever. And it's like, no, like, like there are people out there, there are resources out there. Um, and you know, people make you feel like you're supposed to know this stuff, but, um, let's you've never done it before like I remember the first time the the doctor handed me my baby and was like okay now breastfeed and I was like and that works how you know (laughs) 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 I've never put something to my breast and had anything come out before like this is weird so um so so many pieces of it I think are designed so many parts of the process are designed to make us feel insecure and yet um, when we really tap into the community around us, um, we realize there's there's so many resources that are there and it might take a little humility to, to ask. Um, but I've also found a lot of solace in looking into the past and realizing that the issues of my time are not new. Um, but unlike many other subjects um that are well taught in schools um women's themes women's issues women's needs Um, we have the same patterns in history that in history we talk a lot about how you know we we learn our history in order to Um, not repeat the same patterns of the past. And I think it's just so convenient that for women, we have been denied the ability, at least in public schools um, and colleges (laughs) to learn our history. And so we tend to repeat these same patterns. I mean, how ridiculous is it that generation after generation of women come to motherhood and go, oh, my God, this is brand new. And like, no, it's not. You know, Um, and and Um, and I think just so many issues related to, to motherhood are not, you know, body image issues and athletic issues. All of those things are not new to our generation. Um, I was just interviewing somebody the other day about Maria Teresa who lived in the 1700s and they were talking about her body image insecurities after she gave birth to 16 children. And I was like, oh, cool. I think a lot of people today would relate to her, um,
0: It's really nice to know that that people were still experiencing that so long ago that there's a huge well of women's history that we can draw on. (laughs) But it does feel like you're so alone. I mean, just I mean, we don't have to go on a tangent here, but yeah, body image issues postpartum. I thought I was the only person in the world experiencing yeah. that. It can feel isolating to be a woman sometimes. Yeah.
1: Well, I think that's so much of that that's related to this idea of like women and and everyone trying to give the portrayal of being able to do everything and handle everything and be awesome all the time mm-hmm. and this lack of uh, freedom or comfort in insecurity and feeling and being raw and being, you know, vulnerable in an open sphere. And, and it's even worse now, like every single day, I think gets worse and worse with, um, what is available online and what you see. Like I now, like if I'm on Instagram or another social media platform, I'll be scrolling through things and I just see like an icon for a picture and I just have to scroll straight away. Cause I'm like, if I click on that, I'm just going to obsess over what I'm looking at. And I just, you like, there's so little space in a woman's life, especially having kids in the picture. Um, for for that, you don't need there's just not enough time in the day to spend it worrying that you're not keeping up and you're not making par. like it's not it's it's scary and it that's I think one of the massive driving forces behind um, my personal kind of journey in through you know this post. I guess am I still postpartum? my son is now twenty months old? I'm probably not. I don't think I can get away with saying that anymore, but I guess my motherhood journey now, um, is super related to kind of things that I was expecting of myself based on stuff I'd seen or or stuff I'd heard.
0: Mm-hmm.
1: And yeah, I, I, I think it just leads us kind of down the wrong path. And what you were saying before about women in history, like you always think, oh, well, you know, back 300, 400 years ago, women having babies, they weren't giving a crap whether or not they had cellulite afterwards or whether or not they looked fat because there was no cameras and there was no like you had of such a small community and there was no one to compare yourself to really. But I think that that's by the sounds of it is actually not true. Like women were kind of dealing with a lot of the same stuff that we deal with.
2: Yeah. And it probably varied because, Um, The way that women's body like what has been what has been deemed attractive over time has changed, right? You can think about like Marilyn Monroe just a few decades ago, Um, you know, she was a much bigger lady than we see in most um, magazines, uh, although that's changing, which is really exciting. Um, and so in her generation, having those curves and being voluptuous, right, that was what was attractive. And so to, you know, sometimes you would, you like lose your butt or lose your whatever as a, as a result of pregnancy. And, um, and so, you know, depending on what is deemed attractive in X culture and in X time, which changes from place to place, um, women were dealing with the body image things that come from not looking the way that that culture tells you, you should look. Um, and my, you know, my background, my coming to this space was I, uh, was a high school social studies teacher for a long time. And I realized that women's history really wasn't being taught in schools. And, you know, I had my master's in social studies education. I realized that, um, I'm a woman, a vocal feminist, and like if I don't know women's history and I'm not teaching it in schools, then like nobody does. And so um, I sort of went on this personal journey of trying to figure out, A, what happened, like what are the systemic barriers to getting this sort of stuff into class? and. Um, And then, like, how do we how do we break that stuff? And of course, along the way, I sort of became this independent women's historian um, reading so many books on so many different topics. Um, But what I what I found, you know, of the many things and our podcast really dives into all of those different barriers. But I think one of the biggest ones is that the themes are not designed around women, around women. Right. When you think of like social studies and history, you think about like war, economics, government policy. And sometimes that includes women's themes like government policy would include Title IX. Government policy would include Roe v. Wade. Um, but those are more recent things. And so when you look back in history, when literally the system was not designed with women in mind at all, like in any way, shape or form, in fact, they like laughed at the assertion that it could be, um, I love people love to quote Abigail Adams. Remember the lady, she wrote a a letter to her husband, John, when they were designing the, the constitution and they love to be like, she wrote this great letter. Look at her advocacy in early America, blah, blah, blah. Nobody talks about his response. His response was, I cannot but laugh. That's what he said back to her. (laughs) So, you know, things like that. The system was not designed for women. And so if if the way that we structure our curriculum is about what was talked about in that time, um, then we were were systematically sort of um, excluding women. And when you were talking before, I was thinking about... You know some of my childhood heroes like Cami Granado, who was one of the first women inducted into the hockey hall of fame. Um, I watched her win gold against Canada and was like wearing, you know, wearing my USA jersey and like cheering her out. Um, Mia Hamm, who was a mom when she when she won the Olympics and World Cups and all of those things. And um, you know, that that history is there. But um you know soccer last year. And we made it further in the tournament than any team in my school had ever made it. And, um, Mia ham, uh, sent my team a video and cheered them on as they were going into the big, the big final game. And they were like, I hear, she was like, I hear you have this big game coming up. I'm so excited for you. Like, congratulations, look to left, look to your right. Like, you know, you're playing for those girls. And, I asked my team, do you guys know who Mia Hamm is? My soccer team, you know, like this is a team of girls who play soccer and they had no idea who Mia Hamm was. Mm. And I was like, oh my God. And so I think there's a piece there that is, okay, so how did Mia Hamm get cut out? Like how did people, how did soccer girls in particular not learn about Mia Hamm? Like one of the most iconic women soccer players of all time. How do they not know her name? And I think it's because, our history curriculum is not designed around women's sports themes, women's breakthroughs. Um, and and, you know, I think about some of the the sports activists that make it into my history classes. And the top ones are Jesse Owens. Um, I think about um, Ali, the boxer, right? Um, I think about the guys who raised their fists at the Olympics in protest of racism. And, um, and why isn't sexism like right up there with those other sort of social justice things that get into, get into the classroom? Um, why aren't women's firsts in there? Why isn't the battle of the sexes like a huge topic? Why aren't we talking about Billie Jean King more? Um, you know, where, why didn't we learn about Betty Robinson, the first woman to, to run, you know, in, in the Olympics, where, where are these women? Why aren't they, um, being talked about? What about the layers of race and sexism that are, that are built into sports history. And, um, and there's, there's just so much there. And why, why is it that when it turns to sexism, it sort of gets lost? I think these are the questions that, you know, social studies teachers need to be talking about more to realize that we're leaving out these huge themes that exclude half of the students in their classes.
1: I wonder if with regards to the sports theme specifically, if it's like this idea that, you know, sport is masculine mm-hmm. and activity is masculine and your and 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 proud like physical prowess is seen to be masculine. Um and that kind of links us all the way back to this theme that we're talking about about strength and like women's strength. And though generally if you take a if you take an average woman versus an average man, we can all accept that the average woman is the woman's going to
0: win. Win. Is the woman's win. No, I'm just kidding. Yeah. Exactly. Wait, sorry. You were going to say the other thing. Oh yeah. The other thing, right. Like women are weaker than men. Yeah. Right. Right. Physically. Yeah. Like if you count
1: physical, like it, can this person lift this, dead? This, lift this, um, you know, dumbbell, like there, the likelihood is, is that the average woman versus the average man, there are obviously outliers and there's a bell curve. Um, And uh, but but I wonder if that's part of it, is that this maybe historically the idea of a woman competing in sport and physically exerting herself was seen to be kind of ugly, like it wasn't feminine and beautiful and gentle and soft.
2: Yeah, I mean, so there are times in history where. Women were encouraged, sometimes even for sort of the interconnectedness between sport and birth. Um, You know, we know that when women are pregnant, it's better for them to exercise. Right. And so and it's also better for them to be generally healthy going into a pregnancy. And so that is a that fact has been known since I, I mean, I can think back to like Sparta and the Greeks. Right. So um, a lot of times women were encouraged to be outdoors, to to exercise um, for the sake of sort of like general health and um, and also child rearing and like keeping the community growing and going. Um, So so it's interesting because like that interconnectedness between sport and birth, it it like has forever been there, um, which is kind of interesting, but you're right. I mean, there is this idea of physical exertion that has... Uh, sometimes in history, Ben, and I, I say sometimes because one of the things that I'm really passionate about is I think we've oversimplified women's history a lot to say that, like, well, because there were these sort of segregated spheres, women stayed on their side and men stayed on, you know, their side um, and women didn't cross into those when in reality, um, within their sphere, perhaps women, um, you know, exercised, right? And, and there were sports that were deemed appropriate for women like archery and gymnastics and, and things like that. Um, and, but then there's also time and time and time again, there are examples in history where women and men's worlds, those spheres just blurred and varying by culture, um, varying in time and place. Um, it's just not true. And I, to take it a little bit away from sport, um, colonial America kind of comes to mind where a lot of gender barriers diminish entirely. And I think that surprises a lot of people. But in places like the frontier, which colonial America was the frontier, those social structures and those rigid social norms that we we sort of think of as limiting women um, where you need as many hands as possible to accomplish X task it doesn't matter if you have a vagina or a penis grab a shovel and start digging right like like those sort of things don't don't um don't matter um the can oh can I just ask you
0: a question about that because I think it occurs to me not as a historian but just like thinking uh, about history that there would be other times where you would just want someone to be able to grab a shovel, regardless of whether they were a man or a woman. So what are are there any other times that you can think of, like just off the top of your head, that might have also been
2: like that in history Well, in US history, any anywhere the frontier is that pattern is true. So as the frontier moves westward, that pattern still exists. And this is why um, in the 1860s, it's Wyoming, way out west, that gives women suffrage before anybody else in, in the United States. And it actually starts out west. Women have the right to vote on a state basis out west before it wiggles east. And it really doesn't actually make it all the way to the east coast until the federal amendment is passed in 1920. Um, So so that pattern is true through all of U.S. history of the frontier being that place for equality and where women's exertion and effort and, you know, kind of blending of male jobs, male responsibilities is is ever present. in you know in in lots of different periods I mean Sparta comes to mind it's a place where women were encouraged to be athletic they um, they you know participated in sport and maybe not you know equally but definitely um, different than their Athenian uh, counterparts over in Athens and um, You know, it's interesting, too, like there are lots of examples of women in battle, which, you know, before sport becomes more for fun, (laughs) I would say like training for war is is a big one. Um, And there are so many examples of badass women warriors, like as far back in time as you could possibly go. Um,
1: I just wanted to jump in there because this kind of like jumped right on a thing that's kind of in my mind right now, which is about all of these women you're kind of saying like this battle that we're fighting right now is not a case of being like well now that women are doing all this awesome stuff now we need to start like making it be in you know be recorded and in the history books and talked about it's more that this has been happening forever but maybe it's that it was never like, you know, we talked, if you think about ancient Greece and um, the Olympics, Mm -hmm. like it was never discussed, but I'm I'm, like listening to you now, I wonder if there was like concurrent, maybe not planned and supported and organized, you know, women's events, but I'm sure that women were there watching saying, well, I want to see how fast I can run that distance. And then some of her friends probably joined in and there was probably, you know, competitive sport, for women that was just never put into the history books because it wasn't deemed to be appropriate or relevant or interesting or all of these things.
2: Yeah. And I'm not an expert on, um, Greece and Rome, but I think there's something funky with, um, they competed like in the nude or something. And so it was really inappropriate for women to be there, um, but not because of, not because of the, I mean, I mean, less because of the sport and more because of the attire. <laughs> right, <exactly. laughs> But, um, but yeah, I mean, I think one thing that I would just challenge everybody to do is, is that thing, that, that belief that you have about women in the past, was that true? Would you say that that would be true right now? Right? Like, so, so for example, if the three of us wanted to play a sport and we weren't allowed to play that sport, will we just go, oh, okay, I guess that we're supposed to be relegated to this, to our women's sphere and we'll do that. And like, the answer is no, because you guys love sports and you love being athletic. And if you didn't love those things, maybe you would do that, Right, like if you if you really liked art and you just wanted to paint all day, then maybe you'd be happy to go into the women's sphere and do your thing. Um, but for those other women like you and I who don't necessarily care about domestic things, um, you wouldn't do that. You wouldn't conform to that expectation and. If that's true now, it probably was also true then. And Right, like, like humans are, we're not, people
0: were still very human in a lot of these important ways when we're thinking back on these historical moments and trying to imagine them. We're like, oh, they must have been totally different from us, yeah. but they're not, right? Yeah, they, they would have the same desires and wants and passions, yeah. or at least they would have to channel them differently. Yeah.
2: There's, um. I mean, it's also like cross culture too. I think um, we tend to oversimplify women's experience, uh, especially in the US based on our own biases. Um, I love this. There's a woman, and I'm totally blanking on her name, but she was one of the early supporters of Muhammad in the Islamic, you know, early Islamic empire as it's emerging. And um, she literally dives in front of a spear in order to save him. Um, And like, you know, is in battle fighting alongside Muhammad, like as his bodyguard. And I think that that fact really challenges uh, Western beliefs about women in Islam. Right. To know that, like at its founding, women were um, in these like powerful positions. Women were, um, you know, fighting, literally fighting in in the armed forces. Um, There are the Trung sisters who are from Vietnam, who led armies against the Han um, dynasty, Han Empire. Um, They rode on elephants, which is really cool. Um, (laughs) There's Boudicca, which I'm sure you're familiar with in the U.K., Mm-hmm. Um, whose daughters were raped. Like, I think there's just so many examples of these women who um, took, you know, didn't take any flack and just sort of like stood up and um, did stuff. I think one, pro- maybe a pattern, although I'm, I'm starting to learn that there aren't, that most of the patterns or things that I think are constants through women's history aren't necessarily true. So take this with a grain of salt. But um, I think in most cases, women who stepped up, faced challenges and faced people who said, oh, you can't do that because you're a woman. And um, and so, you know, in all of those examples from Boudicca to the Trung sisters to whatever, there were people who opposed them being in those positions. Uh, Maria Theresa, who became who became uh, a queen in her own right um, in the 1700s, you know, it's interesting. People considered her one of the most powerful leaders, um, the grandmother of Europe. Um, But they were like, but even though she's a weak woman, she is also these things. And so she's sort of like the exception for all women. Right. Mm -hmm. And um, and so those sort of patterns uh, I think do exist where, and and I think in some ways we could take comfort in that, but when people say, oh, you can't do that because you're female or this isn't your space or really you wanna be an athlete and a mom, like those sort of questions, it's like, yeah, I'm facing that. And also women for a lot of time have been facing that. And it doesn't mean that it should continue, but I can also sort of take comfort in women through all of time have been dealing with this sort of like ridiculous challenge based on gender and um and I can I can sort of be comforted that women before me have overcome that challenge. So I, I have a a question on that
0: on that topic because just thinking back to what you were saying about frontiers women and in these moments in history where where um and and like battle right as well like moments where things were about survival and about you know total efficiency of survival like you had a lot of blending of gender roles maybe um I don't know if that's fair to say and what you kind of um indicated is like at least in American history what that led to was equality you know what that led to was women becoming more equal in those parts of the country so I was just thinking about that and thinking about like Okay, but here we are, modern day in sport, we have sport that is divided by gender. And then we have some sports that are mixed in gender. And like, for example, you're an Ironman and in Ironman competition, um, how often do you have athletes that are male and women competing against each other or next to each other or, or in on the same track and so forth? And then for Pam and I, we both actually raced Olympic classes that are mixed gender. So each of us has had male teammates. Um, I know that from experience, I can I can tell you that it certainly evens the playing field a lot. To put men and women on the same race course and it changes that structure and dynamic socially very drastically but i'm curious what you think about that and then just in general like okay so to so to get equality in some places we actually need to um to commit to making that blending of genders happen to begin with it might not happen naturally the spheres might not overlap naturally right
2: yeah i mean there's so many things i I don't, I think you you were talking before about how like, if you know, men and women need to to lift weights or whatever. You know, I'm a big fan of psychology. And one thing that kind of blows my mind is um, the, when, when men were trying to break the four minute mile, um, once one guy did it, so many other people like boom, 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 broke the four minute mile. And To me, what that says is that the barrier, that four minute barrier was more psychological than physical, right? Like young men were capable of breaking a four minute mile. They just thought it was a sort of this invisible barrier that they were psychologically limiting themselves from being able to do. And I think for women, we have too many psychological influences that tell us that we can't physically do stuff and when you start putting men and women on a sailing course together or on a race course together and saying like yeah you are more than capable of competing in this same event at the same weight at the same whatever (laughs) um, it sort of like takes some of those psychological limitations out and I, I, I you know Maybe I'm overstepping by saying weight or something like that. Judge me harshly. Fine. But um, but, you know, in, in triathlon and endurance sports, we're actually seeing women starting to the, the gap, the margins between men and women um, are starting to like really diminish and um, women are breaking um breaking records all the time in Ironman and in triathlon and, um, and the gap between the male winners and the female winners is just getting smaller and smaller. And I don't know if, you know, we're, we're genetically designed to ever like get rid of that gap. But I think what's cool is that the gap's getting, getting smaller. Um, I think the gap is probably getting smaller because there
1: are just by virtue of the fact that there are more people, more women in the pool. So if you've got, you know, 10,000 men doing an Ironman in a year and you've got 500 women and then 10 years later you've got 2000 women just by virtue of the genetic diversity that's going to be involved in that group. Like there are going to be front runners that then would maybe have not done that before. Yeah. Um, I read this fantastic book that I can highly recommend. Um, and it was called the dirtiest race in history. Um, and it was about the nineteen eighty. Olympic games. Um, and it was talking about all of the drug taking and stuff like that, but there was a a really good bit in it that was talking about kind of the genetic predisposition of these specific athletes to be on the course that day because of their, you know, doing sport from an early age. And, um, and like, for example, there's a huge, this isn't from that book, but, um, there's a huge, uh, a huge number of people who are, genetically or who have broken many, many records in some kind of athletic sprint event that can trade, like chain, sorry, that can, um, I'm looking for the right word here, that, that can find their lineage goes back to a specific town in Jamaica. And um, there was events that happened over the course of history that have kind of created this genetic gene pool in this region in Jamaica that um, are predisposed to be very, very fast twitch muscle fibers. And then on top of that sprinting is their pastime that they do at, in recreation at school. So instead of, you know, like when I was at primary school and secondary school in break time, people would play soccer. And so that's why the UK has a really good, strong number of people, mostly guys, who are really good at soccer Mm -hmm. and um, they have a large pool to choose from for these, all these premier league teams. And that's kind of the same deal as this, this, as Jamaican sprint athletes is that they're, that's their thing that they do. And so kids that maybe never knew that they actually were just super talented and really good at sprinting, find out at such a young age that they have this talent and they're beating all their friends and therefore then they get picked up at high school level and then they get nurtured. And that's when they, you know, go and and break hundreds of world records. And um, I think
2: a piece of your question, too, is about, like, how, you know, situations where we blend those gender roles, how those produce more, you know, greater equity. Um, and I think, you know, this idea of separate spheres is something that comes and goes a lot in in history. Um, and there's a lot of really cool emerging research about the Vikings, um, And I think one thing to just always check yourself on is like, do I believe that things were different back then because they're different now? And that might not be that might not have been true. And one of the things that um, is interesting is that when a lot of the research that we have about different parts of the world was emerging, especially for the English, it was being done um, in the 1800s, mostly by British um, by, by British historians and researchers. And what what's interesting is that they put their own sort of sexist biases on the history and the, the historical research that they were doing. And so in particular with the Vikings, what was interesting was they were stumbling upon all these Viking grave sites and villages. And when they found these bodies of buried soldiers, um, they knew they were soldiers because they were buried with swords. Um, and shields and different things, they assumed that these skeletons were actually, you know, male skeletons because they were buried with those things. And there's a lot of emerging um, research right now that actually, because of DNA evidence, we can now, you know, test those bones and find out that they, they were actually female. And um, so it's kind of cool to say, okay, you labeled those things as as male because they had shields. But actually, for the Vikings, those gender norms were much more blurred than they are today. And we now know that women Vikings traveled all over the world. Women came, Gudrid in particular, came to America well before Columbus, um, that women fought in Viking raids. And um, and so they probably had much much greater gender equality than the British people did, Um, and it would take centuries for the British people to, to get to that same place the Vikings were at centuries before them. So I think just culture to culture, it's really hard because cultures will take their own ideas about a group of people, about gender, about race, about whatever, and apply it to people where it might not really actually apply. Um, so, and I, I think the Vikings are a really good example of that gender bending sort of situation where you know, at least in war and in and in their raids, gender didn't matter.
1: You mentioned earlier about simplification um to kind of simplify women's roles throughout the ages. Um How much of that do you think is a conscious bias, or how much of it do you think is like uh like like censorship, like purposeful censorship? Or, or do you feel like it is more like, oh, well, they had a sword and a shield, so they're probably dudes? Mm-hmm. Or is it kind of like, like because there's there's this theory? Um, so um, this is kind of a bit of a tangent, but uh, I'm I had a, when I had my son, I had him at home, and it was a very like I knew that I wanted to have a home birth from very early on in the pregnancy, and it was partly because of some literature I read that was talking about the patriarchal ch- changes to childbirth and how traditionally you know in the 30s 40s and 50s when births started going away from being at home and into hospitals was when the majority of doctors were men and it was because men were trying to take this thing that women did that midwives managed and it was all a very female feminine focused exceptionally you know, incredible thing that was revered and they were trying to take it and have it as their own. And they were like, you can't be the expert in childbirth. I have to be the expert in childbirth even though I can never do it. Mm-hmm. And I, I immediately was like, I don't want to be any part of that even though I know that there are loads and loads of OBs that are female now, like probably like close to 50, 50. If not, maybe there are more OBs that are female now. I don't know. Um Every OB that I've ever met has been female. So I don't know whether or not they just, they, that that's the case. But so I wonder how much of it is. And I don't know how much of that is true as well, but it was it really got my heckles up. And so it's like straight away kind of got me down a certain path. And I wonder how much of that is true about it being like like the like men feeling self-conscious about about women being warriors in, in Viking history. Like were they were they intimidated? Were they emasculated? And was it a conscious decision to be just like men, 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 men? The women were back home making babies and feeding people Mm. or was it just like dumb, like dumb decisions and people not actually, you know, doing like having the uh, availability to do DNA testing and stuff like that?
2: Well, I think there's sort of two answers to that question. I think the first sort of simple one is when historians are looking at history, whether it's, I don't, I don't, I, a lot of these things I don't think are conscious efforts to be like, we're not going to talk about women in class. I, I think it's unconscious bias, right? Okay. There's a sword. It's a dude moving on instead of questioning, okay, is that because you don't see in your culture many women carrying around swords or Mm -hmm. is that right like like that's an unconscious bias that you're imposing on the vikings that um, didn't necessarily exist for the vikings and they had different ideas of um, gender dynamics, and it manifested in different ways for them. And so, I think um, you know, we we talk a lot about unconscious bias in relation to race, but I think we we do women a disservice to not realize that there are so many ways in which we underestimate women, in which we sort of um, limit their their ability to to perform in a million different ways. Right. Um, and, and you can, you know, just thinking about like the types of jobs that we think of women belonging in and, um, and what, like, what does that even mean? Women belong in any job that exists. Right. But yet we, we definitely have these constructs that are social that tell us where women have been and should be. And I think to to the second piece of your question about sort of this transition, there's a really rich history there. Um, and it has a lot to do, um, you know, imagine being men in the period prior to the mid 1800s when, um, uh, lots of these big breakthroughs are happening, but early. Um, so, you know, um, C-sections are becoming uh, a a practice that will not kill the woman. Um, C-sections were sort of like the last thing that you would do before um, you're like, okay, this, either the baby's going to die or the mother, well, the mother's going to die. So let's save the baby. And so you would do a C-section. And it's really not until the 1800s that we see sort of that, 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 a C section working and not killing the mom as well. Um, so imagine in a time prior to C sections, prior to other techniques, being male, um, being a doctor, right? We see these emerging, this em- emerging profession of being a male doctor. Um, I think it's a little oversimplified to say that it's this battle between men and women, although it, you could certainly paint it that way. Um, I think for men birth was this area where they felt incredibly helpless and for a male physician in particular to be losing the lives of so many women in childbirth and to feel powerless right in that, in that situation and be like, this is literally my job to save lives. And for some reason in birth, we can't Um, and to have this, you know, so there's, and then there's also this scientific revolution going on at the same time. And so they're trying to apply, scientific method to um, to the practice of birth. But then you also have all of these Victorian era issues compounding, um, compounding their involvement. And so kind of a classic scenario is these male doctors are going to medical school to learn how to essentially, you know, be an OB and um, support women in childbirth, um, but they don't get to have any clinical experiences because um, that would be so inappropriate for a male doctor to be in the room with a female patient um, and and having these clinical experiences. They might watch um, something happen, but they don't actually get any hands on experience until they're literally doing it for the first time. Um, they, there were things like these women would come to their male doctors and they would be wearing like full Victorian gowns and the doctors wouldn't, you know, I mean, think about birth, like today birth, like women give birth naked. Right. And they're like, there's this whole like vibe in the room and they're, you know, people like feel their bellies and help position the baby properly. And, um, these doctors. It was inappropriate for these male doctors to see those women um, like indisposed, right? Because they're not, you know, this isn't a family relationship. This is a physician. And so these doctors are not actually like if if someone's going to be helping me give birth, like I want them to look at the situation, get their hands in there and like figure out what's going on, right? Male or female. And because of sort of Victorian ideas or even, his, you know, further back in, in, in European societies, Um, they, they weren't doing that. So they weren't, there's, you know, sort of these like layers. So I think it's um, it's not necessarily that men didn't want to like do as much as they could to support these women. They did, but there were all these layers of culture and society that were making it really hard for them to do their jobs. Well, Um, then you add issues of like germ theory, um, you know, where they're taking surgical tools from surgery A, and then coming to help with birth B, and they're infecting the woman with whatever they, you know, they, and that just has to do with a lack of knowledge of germs, which doesn't really come about until the 20th century, early 20th century. Um, So there's, there's just so many layers
0: it's it's so interesting and it made me think about what you were saying earlier in the podcast which is you know how how these themes are not about women's experiences and that the themes of medicine at that time were not about women's experiences and so what that leads to is you know women being further excluded from the theme of what's important at any given time and medicine being structured in a way now even now it's just we we've talked on the show many times about like how wild it is that you can go through a birth experience and it is not standard practice to prescribe physical therapy to women after birth. It should be. It's more more trauma to your body than most non-invasive surgical procedures that require physical therapy afterward. But it's, I mean, there's so much in what we've talked about so far that is so interesting, so applicable, and it's just been such an exciting conversation. I want to just like recap some of it so that just to share kind of what I've learned so far, which is like, okay, so the thematic aspects are important. Like what we make the theme of things about in the way that we discuss stuff, the way that we teach in the classroom, especially to the point of your, of your, of your project, which is so important. Um, talking about breaking psychological barriers and how just, wow, just wow. Just like where that can get you regardless of gender or, or race or any kind of challenge that you're experiencing in society. Um, And that's something that we do in sport a lot, naturally looking to break psychological barriers. So it's like, okay, as female athletes in sport, as athlete moms in sport trying to challenge some of what the status quo is, like, knowing that that's a good way to do it, knowing that that results in positive outcomes, it's just nice to hear. I think this this idea that there is an extremely rich history of women's experiences, and it's very important for us to, what we can do is to acknowledge that history because what that results in is empowering women to achieve and actually empowering women to act entitled to achievement because it's like, yeah, yeah, we can take the position that, we're working against the uh, the machine. You know, like, hey, <laughs> the, the the structure was not built around us. We can acknowledge that. We can feel like we're fighting it. Or we can say, actually, like, yeah, these separate spheres have always existed. And there were women doing very brave and very interesting things throughout the entire course of history. I'm not alone. Um, you know, over time, things change. And the ways that we can help lead our society to that change are, are by, like, we're talking about, you know, like having these conversations, acknowledging the history. And, and I do think one big takeaway for me is just like, I know it's a simple little snippet that you shared about blending, but it just makes so much sense to me coming from a mixed gender sport and also coaching athletes, young athletes, male and female athletes together at the same time. Um, There's so much in what we can contribute as mothers to our own children teaching about gender and equality and what we can contribute as athletes and coaches as well.
2: Mm -hmm. Yeah. I mean, there's also this interesting history. What you were saying made me think about like the sort of story that we tell ourselves that, when women have children, things get harder, um, that sport gets more challenging, that, um, right? I mean, like you talked about, there's this immense need for physical therapy, which there is, but also there are lots of examples of women who then return to very physically demanding sports and play and thrive. In in their field, and I think um, when we know that history, birth becomes a little less intimidating, right? Like you can do that. You're not you had a baby. You're not broken,
0: Uh, right? And I and I well, and what I love about that is like that's one of those knowledge is power situations because if you teach women that physical therapy is a good thing and not to fix a broken thing, you're like, oh hey, like hey, you can do this and then have that, you know, like you're entitled to this so that you may have that because you you're not bouncing back. Actually, you know, you're just you're going to be you but better. You're not, yeah, <laughs> yeah, you're not you're not bouncing back. You're bouncing forward.
2: Yeah. And and it might be different. It might You might look different. You might feel different, um, but you're still moving forward and doing your thing. Um, it's just There's so much meaningful, meaningful history, and I think I'd be remiss not to mention Dr. Sims and some of the the layers of race too. Um, Dr. Sims was a white physician who um, did uh, was there's a lot of different um, things that can happen to women after birth and part of the trauma of, of giving, giving birth on your, on your body. Um, and one of them is that you can have this thing called a, like a fallen uterus, where some of the ligaments in your, in, that hold your uterus into place are, are weakened. And so it drops like down. Collapse. Yeah. And so mm-hmm. it, it's very, very painful. Um, and they, in the 1800s, they didn't have a cure for this. And Dr. Sims, um, is, is credited with discovering this cure. Um, but he is definitely a very controversial figure in history because he discovered this cure by testing out surgeries on enslaved women. And, um, there's so many things that sort of go into this because in, um, in different times in history. And, and again, this isn't always true, but um, in, in his time, there's this belief that black women didn't feel as much pain as white women. And so he could just try all these experiments without anesthesia on these black women. And some of them, you know, their, their names are known. I believe Angela is one of them. Um, and and so we, we have these women's names and I feel like they should be credited with essentially like putting their bodies out on the line for science that would later save so many women from like lives of pain following uh, following giving birth um but I think also these these issues about feeling pain are ways in which women's experiences and women's testimonies can be um sort of undermined and there are some prevailing things that like or, I think myths about birth and about other things that, like, you can give birth without pain. And, like, that is that maybe be that may be true, but for a lot of women, the experience is not that. And it's incredibly painful and it's incredibly hard. And, um, The you know those are ways in which sort of like the patriarchy can come in and mess with um, our own expectations about what we should or should not be able to do related to birth and recovery Um, and. You know, when you when you give birth in the experience that Pam was experiencing or describing, right, where you have all these midwives, which a lot of times are just older women in your community who had given birth before. You sort of have this like sisterhood that of women who, first of all, you you eliminate all those cultural norms uh, around um like men seeing women indisposed and you can really like, just be honest with each other. This is going to suck. This is going to be hard, but you also can do it. I think it's like,
1: yeah. Having someone there that kind of, I'm kind of picturing, you know, centuries ago, where that was the norm where women did have babies surrounded by other women. It's almost like you're looking around like, oh, my goodness, they're all still alive. Huh. They did this and they're still their heart is still beating. That means I can do it. It's like the physical affirmation that you aren't going to die. Yeah. Even though you're doing this thing, which feels like it's going to tear you in two.
2: Well, in a lot of like. You know, it's interesting because this isn't, I would, you know, this isn't true like consistently over time. It varied, you know, again. But um, but I think that that communal thing, if you think about in a small town, you might have witnessed like five births before you actually gave maybe even more before you actually gave birth. You might have assisted your mom in birthing your siblings, right? Before you actually go through that experience. And how many women today watch a birth on a video in a birthing class for the first time as they're like already eight months pregnant. And they're like, Holy crap, I have to do that. You know, and, and, and by seeing many, you know, diverse births, you might know that you're in like, like I went through an entire birthing class. I was as healthy as I possibly could be. I did it at half Ironman. Uh, 12 weeks pregnant. And um, I was like the, the, the epitome of health going into my birth. I took this birthing class and none of it mattered. None of it mattered because I ended up having this emergency situation after 48 hours of labor and trying and doing all the things and ended up having a C-section because that was, that's where it was at. And none of my, my health or my fitness or any of those things mattered going in. And I was devastated afterwards because I was like, I did everything that everybody told me to do. And how, how different would my postpartum experience have been if I had known that like, yeah, and sometimes it doesn't matter, you know? Like, <laughs> Yeah, that's really hard. That's really hard. I want to say two things. One,
0: Dr. Sims is really fucked up. and right. I don't like that guy. I don't like, <laughs> I just want to say that. I'm, I just, thinking of those women and i'm so mad about it and so anyway i wanted to say that fuck that guy also separately (laughs) i'm so sorry that you had that experience and that must have been really challenging i mean i think having a baby is a beautiful thing and i i just um yeah that's hard and we've talked to so many athlete moms and so many moms who have had emergency c-sections and said similar things which is like man i just wish like I wish that had been normalized more because C-section birth is birth is giving birth. It's just as valid. And it's like, we, yeah, I think a lot of the women we talked to, they felt like, Oh, did I fail at doing something that I wanted to do? Like, how do you, how do you be okay with not meeting the expectations that somehow you are like society, other women really, like in our culture now have set, they're like everything from like natural birth, Pam, I think you're fucking awesome. But I'm just saying, like, I know Pam had a natural birth, and I think it's incredible. But like, everything from that to breast is best. Like, we had a conversation about breastfeeding last week. That was so interesting, because, like, I've struggled to breastfeed and found myself battling with societal expectations of what I'm supposed to do to make my child thrive. So, I'm so glad you had a you had a healthy child. I'm sorry that you had to experience that. Um this kind of goes, goes all the time. Well, it kind of goes full circle to what we
1: were saying right at the very beginning, right? That there is there is so much societal expectation on women to do with everything, you know, birth included and careers and everything. But if we're talking about the birth thing, like there's this idea of like what is right, proper, best, best for who, best for whatever. And it creates this idea that women are kind of constantly not reaching a standard. And I think that that is like just poisonous. It's so hard. It, you're, you're, you it makes us always comparing ourselves to other people. Um, and, and, you know, what you mentioned Kelsey about having like, you know, back in the day when you had communities where young women were seeing multiple, multiple generations of, of, and, and people in their communities going through this journey of birth and, and seeing many, many different outcomes. Whereas we just don't have that. Like I'm one of, uh, four, uh, one of four kids and my younger sister was born when I was 13. So I remember it very, very vividly, but I was not involved in that whatsoever, even though we have a very, we still do have a very open relationship we talk about everything in my family there's nothing nothing is off the table when it comes to dinner conversations and um and but I was completely I was not I didn't know what was going on I didn't know what, like how you know it was almost like I was shielded from it and I wonder if that's part of it as well as like kids nowadays it's like oh you can't talk about vaginas in front of young kids yeah. because no, like it's so private and it's like well no that's where they came from like there's so oh, many also- conversations we can have
0: so sorry for talking over you, but it is the source of 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 our strength. Like, or I mean it is an expression of our strength as a gender, as women, as what we are biologically. Like the difference between us and men is our ability to bear children. Not every woman chooses to or can bear children, but that's the difference, like on a fundamental level. And that's what's been capitalized on when we talk about overlapping op- overlapping societal spheres or what the structure is that we fit inside of or not. And it's just so interesting to me, everything that you said, Kelsey, and and also what you just said now, Pim, it really makes me think like, maybe that's part of what we're missing right now. Maybe what we're missing or what we, forget that, maybe what we could offer our future generations is more of a realistic view of what feminine strength is, being willing to talk about how hard it is to bear a child and also, or maybe more, more so than talking about how hard it is, also, forget that. Celebrating that. Like, that's a very amazing thing that our bodies do. It's We're inherently some of the, like, most incredible creatures on the planet just because we
2: do that. Yeah. And, well, and I think also, like, be, you know, like... <sighs> giving birth is hard. Uh, It's the most challenging, hardest thing I've ever done in my entire life. It's also the most meaningful thing I feel like I've ever done in my entire life. And um, you know, I think being, giving future generations a realistic expectation of it, but I think we almost have this like adverse thing where we don't talk about it enough. And so people are um, afraid of it for, for, but they don't even know like what to be afraid of. Right. And um, I mean, like things, things that are ridiculous, like, Oh, you push a baby out of your vagina that must crazy hurt. And it's like, well, no, like your body's designed to sort of expand and get bigger. Like it, that, it like it makes room for that baby to come through. So it's no, you're not pushing a baby like out of your vagina as it currently is. Right. Like, like, <laughs> That's not really, your hips, your hips literally move like your body is like a transformer. Like, I don't know. Yeah, what, you're right. it, was, it was designed for that. Yes. <laughs> so I think I think there's there's we we also sometimes by not talking about realistic um, experiences of birth, histories of birth, stories, birth stories, we almost also create fear and um, unnecessarily, right? Like, I think part of the cool thing about birth is you say, holy shit, my body did that. And yeah. um, and you, you look back on something that you experienced and you're still mind blown about it. And so what a cool like growth mindset, gritty thing that we can empower future women um, and maybe not women, but people with uteruses to like experience. And, um, you know- I. And- this, there, there have been lots of examples in history of societies where they don't teach people about birth. And people, you know, and I also think like there were, there are virgin fetishes that, um, you know, the, almost on purpose, like they wanted, um, they, they believed falsely that um, virgins were more capable of, of giving birth than other women who like had given birth before. And so they have these virgin fetishes, which is also just like a really convenient way to take these ignorant girls who don't know anything and try to impregnate them. And so those are societies where they, they blinded these girls. They didn't teach them about birth or sex or whatever. And then they put them in a scenario where on their wedding night, they're getting like really a horrible, rude awakening to motherhood, to womanhood, right? They're they're experiencing womanhood for the first time. Um, and sometimes, you know, in cultures like India, this was, um, you know, like they were like 10, 11, 12 years old, these these young mm. girls. Well, it's that
1: what you were saying about, you know, kind of being women are kind of almost blinded and shielded from it. It's like knowledge is power, right? So how do we make future generations of women and men understand what birth is and how it can make you stronger and how you can have that backwards, you know, rear view mirror view of it and go, holy shit, I can't believe I really did that is by giving people knowledge about what the heck it is. Because I even, I mean, I'm definitely not kind of going through life, like not researching. I didn't do a ton of research about birth. I just kind of thought that one thing my mom said to me was she was like, it's going to be the hardest thing you ever do. And that was kind of what I needed to know. I was like, I there's no way of me going, well, it's going to be harder than this, but not as hard as this. It's like, it's just going to be the hardest thing you ever do. And you just have to go into it thinking of it like that. Um, but there were things that happened throughout the entirety of my like labor that I had no idea were coming. And I read like four or five books ahead of it. And they still didn't talk about many different things that I was you know, I was really expecting, I'm a very scientific based person and I was really expecting to just know what was going on. And there were things that were happening to my body and I was like not aware and not prepared for. And I think that that's like, maybe it's like trying to desexualize women's bodies is part of the answer as well. So that they can show videos of women giving birth in sex bed and not have it be the type of thing that parents have to sign a waiver to let their kids go through that. Because it's like, hello if you expect if you want to ha- give them and they want the freedom to be able to start a family at some point both men and women and boys and girls need to know what this entails because it's no
2: fucking joke mm-hmm. yeah i mean this is such like it's such an important topic um i want to I, one story that i think is so cool from history is the aztec beliefs around birth um You know, women died in childbirth in really big numbers because they didn't have ways to treat infection. They didn't have, um, you know, like ways to like if a baby got stuck, they didn't have a way to like deal with that. Um, And so in a lot of cultures, this was like part of the reason and women were exempt from uh, war and and not necessarily part of armed forces was because they were dying in such high numbers in childbirth, right? And so you could expend men's male bodies in war, but women's bodies were needed for reproduction, right? And, And they were dying at such high rates that like that kind of made sense, it's just math, right? Um, and in Aztec cultures, um, birth was seen as women's war. That was what it was. And what was really cool is that when you gave birth, um, there was like, this like war vibe in the room of like, we're getting ready for battle. And like, there's just real, and you were celebrated like war heroes were. And we don't have that type of thing in our culture. But like, imagine if like we had freaking military parades for women <laughs> who gave birth, right? Like the best we get is Mother's wow. Day, which isn't even like a military parade, you know? Like I want freaking cannons and fireworks, please. I just, Thank you. I just think of like people doing the haka. yeah. Over
0: like wouldn't that be awesome yeah wow that's such an awesome story yeah um wow so listen last uh, we are running out of time I'm gonna well, I want to do a wrap up here and ask you guys for I'm just gonna take this in a full circle and come back to this idea of the powerful strong athlete mm. female athlete mother figure hot take go Kelsey's first who, who is she what does she look like Anything you want to say about her? Who is she? What does she look like? Does she exist now? Did she not exist before? Has she been there forever? She is, has, is she
2: you? She has <laughs> always existed and she's she's been ever present. Um, and it, that doesn't mean you have to be that. My experience was personally, I really wanted to be that. My role models were all of these professional female triathletes who had given birth and come back. Miranda Carfrey comes to mind, um, and done incredible things. There's this ultra runner who um, ran and won and beat all of the male competitors. So one, I mean, outright, um, while simultaneously she was doing an ultra marathon and at the different, you know, pit stops along the way, she was breastfeeding her baby and, um, I think that's so cool. And these were my role models. And my takeaway was those models exist. Women, they and they have always existed. Women can do all of those things. And my body just didn't do that after birth. And that's OK, too. And so um, as much as I admire those people and I know that that exists, um, I also my my personal experience was coming to terms with my body needed more time and my body needed me to be patient and I wasn't. Um and my motherhood adjustment was um was a redefining of who I was and that was okay too. Um but yeah I think that powerful badass mom has always existed and it took me a while. I battled postpartum depression and all of the things, but um I had actually three surgeries postpartum. Um, and, but I eventually got there and I did uh, my first half Ironman this summer, uh, which is so exciting. <laughs> and that's so that's amazing. Yeah, it's
0: good. And I, and I, 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 know Pam probably feels very similarly, but really appreciate you sharing that. Yeah. And um, <laughs> that, that postpartum journey is hard. And however you get to where you want to end up is part of the, the beauty of where you end up. I think, I mean, I, accepting the changes and the challenges of that and really just living and being that new person. You, I mean, I guess we like to always kind of think of it as you're being birthed to two, right? Yeah. Like right? <laughs> it's a different version of you. And thank you for sharing that. Um, okay, Pam, hot take. Okay,
1: my hot take was
0: or is, I guess,
1: not even a hot take, but maybe a call to action to anyone that's listening um, is to shout and sing as loud as you can about whatever it is that you're doing and kicking ass at, because I think that's how we change it is we are, we have to all act as examples to young boys and girls and say, you know, that it is possible is not only is it possible it is probable that a woman who has a child is going to be so much stronger be it physically or not physically stronger, which is fine. Either way is totally fine, but they will be a stronger version of themselves having gone through this journey of motherhood. And I think that is something that we have this misconception in society that once you have a baby, you're like this soft, fragile, emotional Thing that has a dependent that kind of needs to that draws everything away from you that takes and takes and takes instead of thinking about having a child and that it gives you so much strength that you would never have been able to tap into without that journey.
0: That's be really, I have goosebumps. <laughs> really, really well said. Um, thank you so much, Kelsey. I just want to say for everybody listening out there, you, you can hear everything that kelsey has to say and her podcast is amazing uh she does a podcast that is called the uh, remedial herstory um podcast and you can find it um on your podcast app you can also check out their website at remedialherstory.com um just to be clear that is herstory with an e- h-e-r not h-i-s so herstory yeah. <laughs> <laughs> and uh and aptly named um and I was actually listening to an episode today, episode six, which is about uh, the Olympics um, and women in the Olympics. And okay. and if you're looking for something on topic to start with, I recommend that episode highly. Um, do you have an,
2: uh, an an Instagram account that you want us to share as well? Oh, yeah, we have, we're we on social media. Um, we have a really active Instagram account, Remedial Herstory. You can find us there. Um, we're less active on Twitter and Facebook and other things, but we're there as well. Um we do have an episode also on birth where we go through some of the some of the history of of birth that we touched on today. Um and then of course lots of other women's themes and topics and warriors and badasses and leaders, and, you know, <laughs> other themes that we've we've touched on.
1: And just think ladies who are listening to this in 200 years you are going to be the people that the historians and history geeks of the future talk about so that's your challenge right is to be that person and and don't be quiet about it and don't accept you know somebody telling you you can't do it because we have this beautiful platform now where we have this freedom of speech and expression and movement that we can we can say and do whatever the heck we like and and now now's the time to be we're we're being history makers right now
2: mm-hmm. yes i end most of our our newsletters and things which you can subscribe to on our website with be a history maker <laughs> go do that yeah. um, for the teachers that are listening we also have lesson plans along a lot of these themes on women's history so if you're like yeah we do need more women's history taught in schools um we do have those um, lots of topics and themes that we touched on today that, that are available on our website. That's
0: incredible. Thank you so much for being with us. And, and we hope that we get to chat with you again soon. Thanks, uh, Kelsey. Of
2: course. Thank you guys so much. This has been an absolute pleasure.
0: You can find us on Instagram at mgamepodcast and online on our website at MgamePodcast.com. Thanks for listening. See you next time.